Evolutionary models are a little bit hard to test in nature. The nature of evolution is that it's a long, slow process, which is one reason mathematical models are useful because sometimes you can't see, you can't follow the evolutionary process step by step because it's just too complicated, too long. There's things that you can do experiments on, of course, but really running a whole evolutionary process out from beginning to end is something that can only be done in, in certain systems with very fast generation times and for short periods of evolutionary time. Yeah, sometimes I've said to Maria, I'd like to test that. She says, please don't test the model. For me, as an empiricist, one of the things that's really important and powerful for math models is because they highlight assumptions. In looking and analyzing the model, you look at how, if this parameter is varying, what effect does that have on the outcome? And that helps empiricists to know what to go look for in the natural world. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I am talking to two guests, Jenny Bowman and Maria Sevidio. Jenny Bowman is a professor of integrative biology at Michigan State University, East Lansing, and Maria Sevidio is professor at the Department of Biology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Both have been fellows within the Natural Science Program at SCAS during the spring of 2018. During that time, Jenny Bowman and Maria Sevidio worked on a project together and their joint paper entitled The Ecological Stage Maintains Preference Differentiation and Promotes Speciation was published in the beginning of 2022. And this is the second episode in our theme Genetics and Evolution. Very welcome to SCAS Talks, to both of you. Would you like to say a few words about yourselves? Hi, I'm Jenny Bauman. I am a professor at Michigan State University, as Natalie said. And my research program studies uh, diversification, in particular the process of speciation. And I am interested in how behavior both evolves in different environments and then how behavioral evolution turns around and affects the speciation process. So I've studied the role of mate choice and sexual selection in speciation, and I'm particularly interested in how sexual selection processes interact with natural selection in order to promote diversification. My study organism are stickleback fish. They're widespread around the world, diversify very rapidly. They do so repeatedly. Essentially, we have evolutionary experiments out there in nature that we can use to understand these processes. I'm Maria Servidio. I'm an evolutionary theorist at the University of North Carolina, and evolutionary theorist meaning that I use mathematical models to study biological questions, especially evolutionary questions. And I'm particularly interested in speciation, the process of one species splitting into two, mate choice, learning, and other questions about the evolution of behavior. Thank you very much for that introduction of yourselves. How did you become interested in your respective research area? How come you ended up doing what you do today? Wow, how far back shall we go? I'm a biologist at heart, so that was kind of easy to figure out. I think I got interested in these questions. Actually, I was interested in diversification of signaling in animal communication. And I sort of found the stickleback system 
and thought, wow, here's a system where sometimes males are bright red and sometimes they're black. And that's kind of cool. Why does that happen? And what effect does it have? So I went to the University of British Columbia to start my research with stickleback fish, uh, working with Dolph Schluter there and thought it was really exciting. I was really jazzed about it, but I wasn't thinking speciation yet. And then one day I'm in my office and I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what happens if I look at how isolated these species are and whether that correlates to how different female preferences are or how different male signals are. Lo and behold, it does. And so that was really the initiation of my research into speciation was realizing that when animal communication systems evolve, that actually affects the speciation process. Interesting. What about you, Maria? I was always really interested in animals. I think, you know, even when I was a little kid, little kids are interested in animals. So I was always interested in biology. I loved it even in high school. And then when I went to college, I became really interested in animal behavior. And I had a bit of a setback because, well, I worked a little, very briefly with sticklebacks, actually, also one summer when I was an undergrad. But there weren't really opportunities to work with animal behavior people to do a senior thesis. So I had a bit of a setback and actually worked on functional morphology for a little while when I was an undergrad, but really wanted to go back to animal behavior and evolution of behavior for grad school. So I went to grad school with a lab that took both theory students and empirical students. And I started off on a theoretical project, you know, meaning a mathematical modeling project. And I found I really had an affinity for it. I liked thinking in that way. It was very logical and I've always loved logic puzzles and logic games and things like that. So it really captured my attention. And I started working on speciation pretty soon and mate choice again pretty soon after I got there. So I just took it from there. So you decided to come to the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study at the same time together. How come? Jenny and I were working on a, a paper about speciation and uh, local adaptation, a, a review article together. And she had this really interesting idea for this, what we're now calling the ecological stage mechanism, which we'll talk about a little later in the podcast. I was a little skeptical of it. I didn't think it would work, but I thought it would be really interesting to explore. And then I actually got an email from someone at Uppsala University about this gas program. And I was due for a sabbatical. And so it sounded really intriguing for me. So I contacted Jenny and tried to get her interested in maybe joining up together and going, doing a brief sabbatical at SCAS. So we wrote the proposal and then, you know, there we were, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's nice that you could come together and work here together, I guess, uh, side by side. How would it have been otherwise? Would you have done it anyway, this project? What do you think? I think it would have been harder. I, I don't know. I think it would have been a lot harder. What we had to do in the beginning was, I'm an empirical biologist And Maria has this awesome background in empirical biology, but she's a theoretician. So I had this idea that I had to articulate in a way that Maria could not only understand, but essentially turn into math. At least that's the way I think about it. And so that process required us to come together repeatedly and often and intensely. And that would have been really hard on the telephone. That was pre-Zoom, you guys, right? Or on Zoom, or at that time we were using Skype, right? It might have worked, but I don't think it would have, it wouldn't have been easy and it wouldn't have been as, I don't think it would have been as productive. So yeah, I think it was really important to be able to come together. The activation energy to just get the whole thing off the ground would have been a lot higher if we weren't in the same place. I mean, it turned out that, you know, we were at SCAS kind of on and off for maybe about two or three months together. It took a lot of that time to actually 
get all of this down, like get the model formed, get all these pieces, and all these conversations sorted out and work out all the details. So it, it wasn't like a one or two conversation thing. It was, a, you know, a few trials and a multi-conversation, you know, along probably about a month and a half or so of that was actually just getting it all down or even longer. Yeah, I understand. It's helpful to be together in close proximity when you when you do these kind of projects. Yes, so your collaboration on this project then was successful. And as I said in the in the introduction, you have just published this article together. And uh, maybe we should start from the beginning to let our listeners in on this. So what was your hypothesis that you were working this and how did you go about to, to work further on it? So briefly, I had this idea. I was already calling it the ecological stage. And Basically, the idea is that this process then can actually maintain differentiation among populations and therefore foster the speciation process. And briefly, we just wanted to investigate that idea and find out whether mathematically it could work. If it works in a mathematical model, then it helps us to understand which parts of that might be important in nature. And so I can explain more what the ecological stage is in a minute, but it was really just to explore this idea. I just have a quick question. When you talk about the speciation, what um, animal are you thinking about? Is it any animal or did you have any specific one in your model? No, it's intended to be quite general and to apply to animals and potentially probably could even apply to plants in some situations, especially if they're pollinated. So it's intended to be general, not specific to any particular organism or group of organisms. That's one nice thing about mathematical models is you can be very general. Nice. In your paper, you use um, birds as illustrations. You don't explicitly write in the text that this is about birds. So that's why I was wondering. They were kind of easy to draw, I guess, and use for uh, for an illustration. My, my daughter drew the pictures in the illustration. They're a good thing to think about. We need, we need to come up with a biological example that would resonate and be easy to follow. And so the one we came up with sort of fit better with birds, I think. And people people historically have used the idea of like seed size as a ecological trait that you can use if you have different bill shapes. And so that was just one that had been around for a while. So I think people use birds a lot as examples for speciation, just for historical reasons. But it, these models, again, are very general. When you talk about speciation, I'm thinking about the origin of the species. Is that what it's like, like a new species forming? Yeah, speciation is just like, it could be just defined as a process of one species splitting into two. And there's easy ways to get this happening. It's easy when you have complete geographical separation. So if you have something like a mountain range separating one population into two isolated populations or a different body of water, they're in a different body of water or something where they can't actually access one another. In that case, speciation is thought to be really easy because they're just isolated for so long, these groups, that they can develop either aversions to mating with one another, they just look different enough, or their biology is just different enough that they wouldn't mate if you brought them back together, or they can actually develop incompatibilities so hybrids wouldn't survive between the two. And then there's hard ways to get it to happen, and that's if you allow them to contact one another continuously, the question then becomes, can you actually get separate species if they're not geographically isolated from one another? And so that's We use the term in the paper speciation with gene flow. That's the term that refers to the situation where they can constantly contact one another. And speciation is theoretically much more difficult in that case. But then back to your hypothesis, how did you go about to actually investigate it and have a closer look? How did you do it? 
the general approach was to develop this population genetic model to understand it. I'll let Maria describe the modeling in more detail, but maybe it makes sense now to um, talk a little bit about this ecological stage idea. So I guess I'll start very generally and then explain the pieces. The general idea is that ecology essentially sets the stage for mating interactions between males and females. And what I mean by that is that if ecology is different, males and females interact in different ways. And so they interact in different ways in part because they're adapted to different things. And so they look and behave differently. And also because the context in which they interact, the ecological context, changes their behavior. And we know how ecology affects behavior from you know decades, maybe centuries of study. So that's not a new idea. But thinking about how that then plays into speciation is something that hasn't been thought of, at least not in this particular way before. And so kind of to, to bore in and talk about the details of this, it, the idea starts with populations that live in different environments. And so one environment might be especially filled with parasites, and therefore to be able to succeed in that environment, to live, survive, and then reproduce, you have to be resistant to parasites. So parasites exert this really strong selection on individuals and resistance to parasitism becomes like the thing you need to do in order to survive and reproduce. Let's say in another environment, parasites aren't so common, but boy, there's not that much food around because there's lots of individuals competing for that food. So you have to be really competitive and able to find food and metabolize that food into growth and survival. And so in that environment, the thing that really matters is your food finding ability and your competitiveness. And so there, that's what makes you able to survive and reproduce. And when that happens, you've got local adaptation. And again, that's not a new idea that there'd be local adaptation. But arising from that is really where the ecological stage rests, which is that that local adaptation being so different means that if females are going to pick a male that is good for them to choose as a mate, they're looking for something different, right? They're looking for, in the first environment, a male who resists parasites, because if you mate with a male that resists parasites, you're not going to get parasites from sex. And also your kids are going to inherit those genes that make them resistant to parasites. So you're going to improve your own fitness. And so that should be favored. So females are looking for males that are resistant to parasites. Well, how do you find them? There's got to be some way to know if that male is resistant. And this idea in sexual selection of an indicator trait, a trait that indicates the benefits that females can get is part of the ecological stage idea as well. And so in our example, red color indicates parasite resistance. And we picked that because there's lots of studies that show that red color does indicate parasite resistance. So that's the first environment. The second environment, remember it's food that matters. Being parasite resistant would be good, but it's not that important. And so in that environment, you've gotta be able to find food. Well, what indicates food finding? being big. So if you're large, it shows I had enough to eat. And so females are looking for big males because once again, their offspring can then inherit the alleles that allow those offspring to find food and get big. And so the females are looking for completely different traits in males. Okay. And so that's a really important aspect of this ecological stage idea. And so males have evolved different display traits to indicate their 
benefits they can provide to females and to attract those females. And females have preferences for really different traits. And so that is basically the starting place. And then what we look at is if that's happened in these populations that are separated from one another, and they come back into contact, we call this secondary contact, does that persist? Can populations maintain those differences in the male displays and the female preferences? And does that keep them from interbreeding or hybridizing? And so this is the part that Maria was suspicious about initially. (laughs) She thought that what would happen was everybody would inherit everything. Both populations would like males that were both big and large. And uh, I persisted in thinking it might work. And uh, well, anyway, it turned out that it does work pretty well. So how do you turn this into math? Maybe I'll let Maria talk about that part. There's a type of model called a population genetic model where you have loci, which are locations on the chromosome that have genes that code for the different traits of interest. So like you'd have a locus, say, for color that had genes that coded for red color in Jenny's example, and, you know, maybe for not being red. And you might have another locus for body size that would have genes that allow you to be large or be smaller body size. And so to create a population genetic model, your variables in the model, which are are things that change over time, are the frequencies of these alleles at these different loci in each population. And then parameters in the model are evolutionary forces like the strength of selection, how strongly females with a preference would prefer males with a trait, things like mutation rate, things like recombination rate. And all of those determine the change that happens in the allele frequencies, which are your variables. So to create a mathematical model, you have to write equations that describe the change in your variables over time in terms of how the variables interact with one another and how the parameters affect the variables themselves. So you you end up with, a, in our case, a very large system of equations because <laughs> this is a quite complex model. And you analyze it, in our case, by numerical simulations. So you run a bunch of iterations of a program that steps through the equations as they change through generation after generation after generation. And you see what evolutionary endpoint you end up at in terms of the frequencies of your alleles, like for red color and for large size and for preference for red and for preference for large and all of, all of these pieces that we put into the model. So it requires a, a lot of care in determining those equations in the first place and making sure that they accurately capture the biology of the problem that you want to address. You have to be very careful that the assumptions in particular match the biology, which is where Jenny and I went back and forth a very long time. Because if you have assumptions that are biologically meaningless, you end up with a model that's biologically meaningless. And and that's not an exercise that's very useful. So it's a lot of time spent in building the model and being very careful about that. And then there's also a lot of time spent in analyzing the model and then trying to figure out why you got what you got. You might have some results that maybe preferences and traits evolve in a certain way under certain conditions, and then you have to figure out why that happened. Otherwise, you may have answers, but you can't really explain it it in a paper and you can't really fully understand what occurred. So a large part of doing theory well is actually trying to figure out why you got the results that you did and trying to explain that to the audience in the paper. So it's all a very long process. Yeah. And it's, as you say, you have to be very careful in the beginning to get the parameters right. Exactly. Yeah. Once you're done then and you have your, your result, can you go back to the real world and check that it's true or can you verify it in some way? 
That's a good question. That's a question theoreticians get a lot. There's sort of two relationships, I think, with the real world. The, the main one, I think, is getting the assumptions right. So as I was saying, making sure that the assumptions that you put into the model match what the biology that you actually want to capture and match realistic features of populations that are actually evolving in nature. Once you have the assumptions correct, the mapping between the assumptions and the outcome, as long as you did your math right, that should be, <laughs> that should be fine, that should be correct. You might get predictions out the end of the model that you could then potentially go and see if they're met in nature. If they're not met, what it really means is that there was probably something wrong with your assumptions. Again, if the math is right, the you know math is math. <laughs> math is truth. You know, math works the way math works. So it probably means there was something wrong with what you're assuming going in if your predictions don't really match what you see in the real world. Evolutionary models are a little bit hard to test in nature. The nature of evolution is that it's a long, slow process which is one reason mathematical models are useful because sometimes you can't see, you can't follow the evolutionary process step by step because it's just too complicated, too long. There's things that you can do experiments on, of course, but really running a whole evolutionary process out from beginning to end is something that can only be done in, in certain systems with very fast generation times and for short periods of evolutionary time. Yeah, sometimes I've said to Maria, I'd like to test that. She says, please don't test the model. For me, as an empiricist, one of the things that's really important and powerful for math models is because they highlight assumptions. In looking and analyzing the model, you look at how, if this parameter is varying, what effect does that have on the outcome? And that helps empiricists to know what to go look for in the natural world. If I go and look at how different the selection is in two environments, or I look at how strong the preferences are for females, or I look at whether males experience what we call a trade-off if they actually express both traits. Those are things I can go out and measure in the natural world. Not all of them are easy, but you can do it. And we know from the model now that those three things are really important to the outcome. And so if I can go and find that males do experience strong trade-offs, if they try to be both big and red, then it tells me, that that assumption is actually one that you find in the natural world. And that means that that's likely to influence the outcome of that system in terms of this modeling framework. And so pointing to which things should be measured is a really important outcome for an empiricist in looking at a math model. Interesting to see the um, sort of Well, the exchange you have with each other there from your different uh, viewpoints and areas of expertise. You have done your work, but how would you describe it to somebody on the outside? Why is it important that you study this? And why are your findings important? Well, I'll say what I think is the first thing that's important is that there have been lots of models of speciation to date, some of them really good and powerful and have really changed our thinking about the process of speciation. And there have been quite a number of models of speciation that focus on the role of sexual selection. And by sexual selection, I mean selection arising from things like mate choice and male competition in finding mates. And although one of the reasons people explored the, the process of sexual selection and speciation was if you look into the natural world, you see quite often the males of different species that are closely related look pretty different from each other. And they look the most different in sexually selected traits. So plume color fancy feathers on birds, courtship behavior, 
appendages that are used to grasp females in mating. All these traits are involved in, in mating interactions, and they're often the most different between species. And yet, before our model, none of the models of sexual selection could actually explain that diversification of those traits, even though that was maybe the initial observation people used to lead them to the idea that, oh, maybe sexual selection is important in the speciation process. So I feel like our model is important, maybe mostly because it can actually explain that. There's kind of an odd genetic assumption that people have been making that may sound like a modeling detail at first, but people have often been assuming that there's one axis of traits, essentially. So you'd have like a locus that has maybe alleles for like dark color and for light color of plumage, but they hadn't really been thinking of like one set of loci for plumage color and a total different set of loci for something like a song character or large size. And in nature, animals actually do, males do differ in really different sets of traits. It's not just one axis like plumage color. And so even though that may sound like a subtle distinction, this model is the first one I know of. Well, there's one other that um, maybe preceded it, but not not wasn't analyzed in as much depth or explored as thoroughly. But it's one of the only models that actually looks at these two totally different trait axes. And so it can really explain a lot more diversification than a lot of the other models do. In general, I think I'd also say that, um, I mean, speciation's always been a fascinating question for biologists, like Darwin even titled his book on the origin of species, right? So I don't know if he really meant it in exactly the same way. I don't remember to what degree you talked about speciation per se, but it's been a very long lasting question. And our model also addresses the maintenance of species differences. So we primarily analyze the case of some divergence having occurred in isolation and then having gene flow occur afterwards. Although we do touch on cases where we have initial divergence of species with gene flow, like not having a period of isolation first. But the situation of having populations that have diverged come into contact when they can still hybridize is something that actually has conservation implications. And it's happening more and more because of human changes in the environment, whether it's people physically bringing species from one location to another, which happens a lot, people removing barriers, like by destroying habitat or altering habitat in some way, or just climate change actually also causes species to shift their ranges in a way where they contact one another more often. So it's good for people to understand what mechanisms can keep species apart now more than ever, I'd say. So where do you go from here? The study is published. What is happening next? Or has anything happened already? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm looking at a lot of questions now focused a little bit more on the genetics of traits involved in speciation. So traits that are involved in the ecology of how species perform in nature, like in the examples we've been talking about, for one. So individuals might, for example, have a trait that helps them use the resources in their environment. And they may have separate traits that help females find, let's say, males as uh, potential mates. So you could call those ecological traits and mating traits. And people have long recognized that a particularly powerful situation for allowing speciation to occur is when the ecological trait and the mating trait are actually the same trait. So maybe females actually focus on the bill size that males have that enable them to eat the seeds that they eat in the environment. In that case, if you have like two different 
seed sizes in the environment and what's therefore called divergent selection because you would, it would select for two different bill shapes. That actually pulls the mating trait apart because the mating trait and the ecological trait are the same thing. So there's a name for that, which is probably a pretty bad name, but it's called a magic trait. And the idea was that it must be magical because it's so easy. It causes speciation to happen so quickly. And people have been searching for these types of traits, these magic traits for a long time. And they've found a lot of evidence. Well, they found a reasonable amount of evidence, I'll say, for them in different species. And sometimes the way they look for these traits is they actually look for genetic co-localization, meaning the genes causing these ecological features and these mating features occur at the same locations on chromosomes. And the question then is, is it actually the same genes that are underlying these traits or is it just genes that are closely physically located next to one another just because they happen to be in the same place on the chromosome? So for the last few years, my lab has really been concentrating on figuring out whether or not it matters if you have the same gene underlying these traits, which is called pleiotropy, or if you just have co-localization, which would just be a very low recombination rate or what's called very tight physical linkage between these two traits. We found that actually very tight physical linkage works pretty much just as well as having a magic trait in keeping species apart. And it actually does some interesting things, which is the mating function of the mating trait can actually make it easier for the ecological trait to have divergence, which is the opposite of the way people normally think about these traits and how they interact with one another. So right now we have a grant where we're looking at evolution of recombination rates between these types of traits, ecological and mating traits, to see if you can evolutionarily expect them to start to co-localize during a speciation event. And so that, that's where we are. We're exploring that right now. So can I, I'll say something about that. I think it's really interesting that physical linkage and pleiotropy are so similar in their outcomes because lots of people would have predicted that's not true. Yeah, we were excited by it. Yeah, that's cool. What about uh, you, Jenny? What, do you have an example of some ongoing um, project in your lab? Going back to my roots in empirical work, <laughs> I've been working on a project with a collaborator, Jason Kagi at Penn State, trying to understand the cognitive mechanisms that underlie females choosing mates, in a particular in the context of choosing between males of their own species versus another species. And so this is not a general thing. This is using a system, stickleback fish, and two species that differ in many, many ways. And we know from lots of work in my lab and other labs that these species are strongly reproductively isolated from one another, and that mate choice is a really important part of that. So we've been trying to understand how the brains of females are working as they're making these choices between their own males and the other males. And previously, we've done a lot of behavioral work, and you can use, um, you know, in, in studying animal cognition, you can't ask the animal, what are you thinking? Because they can't talk to you. And so... Typically, you do very careful behavioral observations and manipulate things so you can look at their behavior to get some insight into that cognition. And so we've done quite a lot of those kinds of experiments. And now we're turning to trying to understand how gene expression in the brains of females is connected to this cognitive decision making and to the process of mate choice in speciation. And so I call this project Mate Choice in the Brain, just my little name for it. But it, it highlights to me that really understanding female preferences and how they act in speciation requires us to understand this decision-making process. And so this project is unique in that a lot of times when people look at gene expression, 
They just look at gene expression. They don't measure phenotypes and they certainly almost never measure behavior. So we ran a behavioral experiment. We took two species of females. We presented them with males of their own species and the other species. We measured female preference behavior. We also measured male courtship behavior and the phenotypic traits of males that we already know are important in mate choice. Things like male color, male size, male courtship behavior, etc. And then we looked at gene expression in the brains of these females and we're looking for differences between species, differences between choosing a con or a heterospecific male, so a male of your own versus the other species. And first, we find lots of differences between species in which genes are expressed in their brains during mate choice. So that in itself, I think, is interesting. The species of females are thinking really differently about what's going on as they're looking at males. And we found a few sort of modules of genes. These are sets of genes that are co-expressed. And what that means is in response to something, in this case, in response to a conspecific male, genes are either turned on or turned off. And so we're looking at these modules of genes that are working together, essentially. And, and presumably, they're either responding to the same stimulus or involved in the same function. And so we find a few genes that actually are turned on in the species of females that likes red when the males they're looking at are really red. And the redder the male, the more those genes are turned on. The other species female who doesn't really look at color so much in mate choice, that same set of genes are turned off. And the redder the male, the more they're turned off. And I think that's a really exciting finding because we're making connections between the genes that are regulating cognition and behavior and brains and how that's basically interacting with the external world, in this case, potential mates. So that's a project I'm really excited about for lots of reasons. It's also one that relates to the ecological stage for a couple of reasons. One, sticklebacks, I think, follow this ecological stage. It's part of my inspiration for the idea was watching them mate, especially when I'm doing this in the natural world. And we know females have different preferences. We know males have different traits. We know that everybody's differently adapted. And so it really fits with that whole process. So for me, it's really exciting to think about getting a handle on sets of genes. And some of these, we know what they are, and they're at least candidates for regulating this decision-making. So getting a handle on that, I think, is really exciting and really gives our understanding multiple layers, looking at the outside world, where selection comes from, looking at the traits that are evolving in response to that selection, and then looking at the genes that underlie those traits that are evolving in response to that selection, especially when those traits are behavioral. So I'm pretty excited about that project. It's ongoing, hopefully soon to be published. That's super cool. Do you think those are perception genes or do you think those are preference genes? Like the ones that, for red? So some of the genes are currently unidentified, but the candidates we have, as far as I recall, there are some that are sensory, but a lot of them are not. They could be preference genes, yeah. Are you starting to make a mathematical model now, Maria? <laughs> well, it's actually, it's really interesting to think about the difference between preference and perception. I mean, they're related. It's hard to say if they're perceiving something less or if they're preferring it less if they're perceiving it. So being able to tease those apart is really interesting. Yeah. yeah to me, it sounds like really detangling a, a really complex system, right? Like 
and pulling the different parts and components apart and then putting it together again in the big picture. <laughs> yeah, I'll say, so life is complicated. Anybody who thinks otherwise is not paying attention to how complicated life is. So trying to understand that complexity is part of what drives me. That said, you can't understand everything all at once because it's just too much to figure out and things interact. And so if they're interacting without you disentangling them, you can't really see what's going on. So you do have to disentangle. You have to isolate certain things in order to understand how that thing is affecting your outcome or the biology that you see around you. So the sort of analysis and reduction is really important, but then the synthesis and putting it all back together again is equally important, I think. And drawing connections between things that might not initially seem like they're that connected, I think is an important part of that process. I've long been an advocate of inter- and multidisciplinary study and synergistic or synthetic thinking, I think is a really important part of understanding biological complexity and something I like doing. And so for me, that's an important aspect. Sometimes it's really important to take a step back and get that long view. It's easy to get tunnel vision <laughs> for any scientist, I think, because you're so concentrated in the techniques you're using and the specific types of questions you can answer with those techniques. One nice thing about just talking to somebody else who's doing something related, but from a different perspective, is it forces you to take a step back and, and take the long view and put things together. I agree. Yeah, nowadays, I mean, you also, at least in genetics and I mean, also in, in mathematics and computational models, I mean, you have a whole new toolkit, right? You have new methods and, and ways to analyze your questions. It's especially true of genomics and, and those areas. Also, although it's nice to have computers that are faster than the ones I was using in grad school. <laughs> Analyzing some of these things would not have been possible with those. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add about your research? I'll just say it's been really fun and eye-opening to work on this project with Maria and um, stretched my thinking for sure. I'm pretty good at math, but I never trained as a theoretical biologist. I have a couple of models that I did as a grad student, but Yeah, they're in my notebooks instead of in the public record because they were more exercises for me. So for me, this has been really exciting and fun, sometimes kind of frustrating because it was complicated. And as Maria said early on, this is a complicated model. And partly when we were building it, I'm like, really, you want to add another parameter? She's like, yeah, we should do that because, and she had a good reason for doing it. I was like, okay. So engaging in this in this process for me as an empirical biologist has been really enriching to my thinking and my career and my understanding of how you can try to understand evolutionary processes. One awesome thing about working with empiricists like Jenny, especially Jenny because she's so smart, is that uh, you know it's it's easy to kind of think that animals are doing one thing and I don't know not broaden into all the cool things that they're actually doing. <laughs> So it's great to get insight from someone who's actually working with animals in the field and working in experiments and just thinking, you know, very broadly about these sorts of questions. I'll just also say something about collaborating. I love collaborating, but I will say that collaborations have challenges and also pluses. And it's really, when you find a great collaborator, it's really a treasure. And I think Maria is a great collaborator for me. And I know she collaborates with lots of people. So my guess is that Maria is just a great collaborator writ large. 
So those collaborations are so powerful and so fun, right? Part of why, why we do science is because we love doing it. It's fun. And when you find that kind of a really great collaboration and it makes it so fun and your mind is stretched and you're really learning something new is really important, I think, for the progress of science and for the enjoyment that scientists have in, in engaging in that process. Yeah, I love collaborating too. And I have to say, Jenny is amazingly patient with all of the wrenches that theory projects throw at you, which is a lot more than I think she was expecting. <laughs> so one of my favorite things to do is behavioral experiments in nature. It's really hard. I'll just say that right now. It's really hard to do. And I think partly I love it because it's hard, but mostly I love it because I'm there watching the animals do what they do in the natural world. That's why I started being a biologist, right? And so I'm used to how hard experiments are to do. And Obviously, I was wrong, but I thought, well, it's a math model. So you write a bunch of equations and you run a bunch of simulations or you analyze it analytically and then it's done. It should be quick. And boy, did I learn something because none of that is quick. And all of it requires both really careful thinking. And so you have to kind of drill in and be really careful about specifics and the analysis and being super logical. And you have to step back and take the broad view and figure out how it all goes together almost simultaneously. And so for me, kind of getting involved in that at the level that this had me involved in it was really eye-opening. Let's finish off with talking a little bit about SCAS, the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, where you spent some time together and did this project together. Uh, we've already heard a lot about your stay, that you really enjoyed to work together. It was very fruitful. But of course, there were also other fellows around you, and you were a natural science fellow, both of you, among a lot of other disciplines. How was that experience to be in this multi- and interdisciplinary research environment? It was really interesting for me. I just, I haven't been in that environment since college. And even in college, you start to kind of funnel yourself and hang out with the other bio majors and things like that. So I always had pretty broad interests in arts, especially in history and literature. And it's easy to lose some of that as you go through and concentrate so much in your career, especially if you have a family, have kids, and there's you're being pulled in so many directions already. It's hard to kind of follow other interests. So I haven't been talking to people other than biologists and, you know, in that capacity for years. It was really stimulating, I guess is the best word, to, you know, be at lunch and have these conversations about things that I just would never have been having conversations about in my lab, for sure, or just, you know, even hanging out with other people in the bio department here. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I don't know that I said anything intelligent in the entire time as far as adding to anything that, that they picked up from me, but I, I enjoyed just being a fly on the wall, largely. Yeah, I'll echo that. It was a really congenial environment. Everybody was, you know, interested in finding out about what the other person was doing and the dif discipline they were working in. And so fostering that kind of collegiality was really awesome. And SCAS does a great job of that. And like Maria, um, my interests are broad. I'm also interested in the arts. I was essentially a writing and science major combined during undergraduate. 
And like Maria, I have been, I have a family. I started grad school with a family. And just, you know, the demands of your career make it hard to keep up with those kinds of things. And so being at SCAS, you know, there were philosophers there. I haven't done philosophy in ages. It was so fun talking to these people about, you know, their philosophy questions and how they were looking at these, these issues and stuff. The history, I've never really studied history. I think history is cool. So the historians were amazing in how they pulled together these great cultural ideas, the cultural context and the, the actual events that occurred and putting it all together into deep understanding of peoples and reasons why things occurred and all that. It was really, it was fascinating to me and it was fun. And I'll also say food at lunch was delicious and it was hard to not gain weight <laughs> because it was so good. Conversations at lunch were also really stimulating and fun and engaging. People seemed genuinely interested in the biology. And so it was fun talking about our work in ways that uh, kind of resonated with these people. And then we had these really great field trips that were really fun. You go learn about Swedish history. You see the Swedish countryside. All that stuff was, was really great. So I feel like SCAS really did a fantastic job of providing this environment where people just flourish. I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to be there. Plus the Orangerie was a really beautiful place to work. And I'd walk through the gardens or I'd ride my bike through the gardens on my way to work every day. And that was really nice as well. The trips were really amazing. They were a lot of fun and they were really fascinating. We brought my kids on some of them and they were asking questions in the churches about, <laughs> about different things. So I, just very educational. And also the lecture series was fun. For me, it was like watching the History Channel. <laughs> we usually get that sort of thing from you know, actual historians you know, or sociologists. So pretty amazing. Thank you very much for joining this podcast, Scus Talks, and talking to me and our listeners, of course. It was good to get you two together also, I think, to get your perspectives on this paper, on the work that you have done together. I really enjoyed that. Thanks to Natalie. This has been really fun to be part of this podcast, and I appreciate your interest and your great questions. And yeah, thanks. Likewise. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun to look back on it. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You have heard Jenny Bowman, Professor of Integrative Biology at Michigan State University, and Maria Sevidio, Professor at the Department of Biology at the University of North Carolina. We have talked about their joint publication entitled The Ecological Stage Maintains Preference Differentiation and Promotes Speciation which they worked on together while they were fellows at SCAS during the spring of 2018. This was the second episode in our theme, Genetics and Evolution. In the previous episode within this theme, we have heard Helen Ann Curry about endangered maize and the importance of seed banks. The other topics for the spring term of 2022 include gender, Latin America and also developmental issues and human rights. The list of podcast episodes and themes is growing. Our previous topics include the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures and Asia, citizen and state relations. 
The variety of the themes reflects the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS, with fellows from many different disciplines. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Jenny Bowman and Maria Sevidio once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>